If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. It is good to be back in worship together. I know after last week of uh, a little weather event kind of prohibited us from being here. Uh, And then the week before, it was New Year's Day and about half of you were somewhere else except in St. Mary's County. Week before that was Christmas. Still some of you, about half of you, were somewhere else. Uh, But it's good to be back gathered here today on this wonderful Lord's Day the Lord has given us. We did begin a series, a new series on worship. We've entitled Made to Worship. And this is our second sermon in that series. We'll be looking from God's Word. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 will be our text. Let's pray as we seek the Lord's help this morning. Father, we ask for your help and your grace as we seek to open your word, to glean from it, to be transformed by your spirit and empowered to live lives worthy of your name. So Lord, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, how did worship go for you last week? How did worship go for you last week? Now, participation here. If You are thinking, well, pastor, you just said we weren't here last week, so I'm not sure how to answer your question. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if that's what you're thinking. Oh, you're not going to play around this morning. I need to give you folks more credit. What was the most memorable experience you had in worship last week? You see, sometimes when we hear questions like that, our temptation is to think back to last week's worship service. What did we sing? What did you preach on? And trying to examine, okay, I don't I don't remember. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I was out of town, or Maybe you were in worship somewhere else last week, corporately, gathered with other believers. Maybe those are your thoughts as you're trying to assess how worship went for you last week. But even if you were home on a Sunday morning last week, my question is still valid. How did worship go for you last week? You see, in our minds, worship is often equated with a time and a location. This building, at this time, with these people. But is that how we are really to think about worship? Is worship really limited to a particular time where you meet to sing, to pray, to hear God's word preached? See, when I ask that question, how did worship go for you last week? I'm not just referring to an experience you had on a Sunday morning. I'm actually referring to what you experienced on Monday and Tuesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Thursday at lunch, Friday, Saturday, and so forth. Because worship is more than just an event that we come to. It is a lifestyle that we live. Two weeks ago, when we began our series on New Year's Day, we began by taking a look at the God that we worship. And as I said that Sunday, many discussions about worship often begin at the wrong place. 
When you think about worship discussion, hey, we're going to talk about worship, most of those conversations start at the wrong place. Immediately, we want to go in to talk about how we worship. We want to talk about the mechanics of worship and, and, and styles of worship and this and that, but it's the wrong place to start. Instead of running quickly to the how, we are too prone to forget the who of our worship. So it was right that we began with an understanding of who God is. Well, today we're going to begin considering the how. Maybe not quite in the way that you think. Let's look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing to the church at Rome. He writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You may be seated. Romans chapter 12 is a pivotal turning point. That sounds redundant. It's pivotal point in the book of Romans. Romans is 16 chapters long. Lord willing, we're going to begin preaching through Romans this fall. So if you'll stick around till September, that's when we'll come back to this book and spend quite a while in it. But Romans is 16 chapters total, but it's nicely divided into two sections. Chapters 1 through 11 are a thorough and an amazing treatment of the gospel of grace. It is a marvelous exposition of what God has done to reconcile humanity to himself through Jesus Christ. So chapters 1 through 11 are a treatment of what the gospel is, and chapters 12 through 16 include implications of the gospel. Or you can think about it this way. Chapter 1 through 11 explains what grace is. Chapters 12 through 16 details what grace produces. So you have in chapters 12 through 16 kind of the practical outworking, the, 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 uh, the response to the gospel, how it changes us and how it makes us different. Right here in... Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, we have the transition between the two. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. You've heard me to say often enough that whenever we find the word therefore in the Bible, we should ask what it's there for. Meaning that our attention should be given to the matter or the content that comes before it, all that he said prior, and understand that now there's going to be a connection and an implication of what we're to do in response to what's been said prior. So that's what Paul is doing here. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, based upon what I've just outlined for 11 chapters, this is now how you ought to live. And notice the very first thing, I sound very loud, so I don't know if I'm sounding loud to you. Maybe it'll keep you awake. Uh, but uh, if you notice here what he's, what he's saying, the very first practical implication that Paul is saying that, that is a response to the gospel is worship. 
worship. Here's the main point that we want to make this morning is simple. Worship is not an event. It is a lifestyle. Worship is not simply an event. It is not something you go to. Worship is something that you do all the time. But what does that look like? Let's unpack that from these two verses this morning. What is a life? What does a lifestyle of worship look like? Several things here. Number one, it looks like a life dependent upon God's mercy. It's a life dependent upon God's mercy. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. Paul is pleading with the believers. He's saying, I appeal to you. This is not just a suggestion or a sanctified uh, suggestion. It's actually a begging, a pleading. It's an appeal, calling one to look back. And he says, I appeal, I beg you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Mary, the very motivation of our obedience to God is the mercy of God. The Christian life is not live a certain way and live. Rather, it is God has given you life. Now live like it. That's the gospel. God has given you life. Now live like it. And sometimes we want to flip that around. We want to say, okay, in order for us to live, we've got to live like it. That's not how the gospel works. When someone has been the recipient of God's saving mercy, it humbles them. It changes them. You are a new creation, the Bible tells us. You cannot become a Christian and things remain the same. You just can't. So if you are here today and you call yourself a Christian and absolutely nothing has changed in your life, you're not a Christian. So how do you know my heart? I don't. 99% sure that you're not a Christian. If nothing has changed, God changes us when he saves us. A life that's lived unaware of the mercy of God is a life that will never be committed to the worship of God. A life unaware of the mercy of God will be a life uncommitted to the worship of God. You could say it positively. A life aware of the mercy of God, it will be a life committed to the worship of God. Sometimes I think we as Christians think that we graduate from the gospel. Like the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the fact that he lived a life of perfection and died on the cross for our sins. We think that, that somehow that that's what gets us in the door of being a Christian and then we move on to bigger and better things. Friend, can I just ask you, who has ever outgrown God's mercy? Whoever outgrows that? Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians need the gospel. Non-Christians need it to be saved. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. You need this gospel. You need to understand that your sin offends God. 
You need to understand that God is holy and that he will hold you accountable. And unless you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you will perish forever, for, forevermore. But if you will look to Christ and trust in him, your sins will be forgiven, you'll be adopted into the family of God and you will be changed and forever his. That is news for you, friend. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. But Christians also need the gospel in order to flourish and grow in our devotion to Christ. Listen, Paul has spent 11 chapters, 11 of the most detailed chapters you'll ever find unpacking the gospel. And he didn't write it for a Billy Graham crusade. He wrote it for a church. Now, Billy Graham crusades could, could make great use of this, but that was not Paul's purpose. He's writing to believers unpacking for 11 chapters this amazing, beautiful gospel of Jesus. You know, friends, when our hearts aren't connecting well with God, we, we often want to blame other things, don't we? We'll blame how life is just too busy. We'll blame difficult people that get in our way. We'll blame the music at church. But friend, could it be, could it be that if you're not connecting well with God, just making the suggestion, could it be that maybe you've somehow taken your eyes off of the mercies of God? Could it be? Worship is ultimately a matter of the heart. And if our hearts are not routinely reflecting upon the mercies of God in Christ, then our devotion to follow and worship him will not be there. That's why it's important that in our corporate gatherings that we focus much on the gospel. That's why it's important that as you go throughout your week, that you are thinking often about the gospel of Jesus because you need it. You need to be reminded day after day after day after day of how much God has done for you in Christ. And were it not for God's mercy, we would be lost. We would be lost. So, a lifestyle of worship must include a regular awareness of the mercies of God. And are you thinking often about Christ and what he's done for you? Or do you think you graduated from that? I'm going to discipleship now. I'm going to do equip classes because I'm a Christian. Friends, you need Jesus just as much today as you did yesterday and the day that you came to know him. Don't take your eyes off the Savior. You exist by the mercy of God, period. Number two, a lifestyle of worship would be a life committed to sacrifice. Paul says, appeal to you therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, the mention of sacrifice obviously reminds us of the Old Testament practice 
Sacrifice. Sacrifices were central to the worship of God in the tabernacle, at the temple. They were brought to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. They were brought as a means of atonement for sin and those kinds of things. And you can see the complexity of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And yet, when we get to the New Testament, we know that Christ came and was the sacrifice, the perfect atoning sacrifice once and for all. No more need for bulls and goats. Christ came to be that final atoning sacrifice for sin. So why would Paul say, post-Jesus, after Jesus came and laid down his life as a sacrifice for sinners, why would Paul say that we're to be a sacrifice? Why would he say that? Well, notice the type of sacrifice that he calls us to be. Three things here, a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, and an acceptable sacrifice. Let's unpack this a bit, a living sacrifice. When you think about a sacrifice in the Old Testament, what happened to the animal? It it dies, but yes. It's dead. And so Paul's not saying become a sacrifice and just be slaughtered. No, he's not saying that. It's a living sacrifice. This living sacrifice points to our new life in Christ. Go back in Romans 6, verse 11. We were made alive in Christ. We are a living sacrifice. We live because of Jesus. So when we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, we are giving our entire life as those God has redeemed, as those God has has brought to himself, we are giving our entire life to him. Notice the totality of this command. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Somehow, I think with good intentions, we've developed this saying in the church, and I know many of us have said this, and I'm not picking on you, I'm just saying all of us have said this, and and it says something like this, in order to become a Christian, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. Now, I think I know what we mean by that, but it's neither biblical or helpful. The Bible calls us to repent of our sin and to believe in Jesus to be saved. And as a result, to give our entire life to the Lord, not just our hearts. He wants more than just your heart. He wants everything, your entire body to be given over to him. He wants all of us. As true worship involves the giving up of our lives to be entirely dedicated to the Lord. True worship is a lifestyle, not just an hour or an hour and a half. True worship means that we are to live in a way that acknowledges God's full worth and value with every part of our being. And just think about your own life. Can your life be described as a living sacrifice? It's also a holy sacrifice. For something to be holy, it's set apart. Set apart for God's use. Old Testament sacrifices were required to be the first fruits of the flock and without blemish. But in Christ, we know that this has been fulfilled. The perfect Lamb of God. And so we aren't presenting ourselves as a holy sacrifice in order to somehow be reconciled to God 
but we're doing so in a manner that seeks to honor God. Let's expand on that a bit more because I think it's important for us to, to understand holy sacrifice. We're, we're not seeking to be holy to make ourselves right with God. We're seeking to be holy because God has made us right with him through Christ. And it pleases him, it honors him. Paul unpacks this a bit more in verse two, where he talks about not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind. About testing may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think this is an, he's, he's kind of fleshing out a bit more what it means to be a holy, acceptable sacrifice to God. Two main commands here that, that, that being a holy sacrifice requires. It requires nonconformity and it requires transformation. It requires nonconformity. There are many things that call for us to conform today to a certain standard. Just think about your employer. Your employer has certain expectations for you to conform to. If you don't, you're gone, right? And there are good things in our culture today that we're called to conform to, but, but just our culture at, in general, I mean, it's, it's calling for us in the name of tolerance to conform to its own humanly developed standard. And when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, he is in essence calling us to evaluate what our standard is, more than he's calling us to evaluate the particular things that we do. For example, the culture we live in today calls for tolerance, but it's a much different kind of tolerance than we get from the Bible. The call for there to be more tolerance today is really a call from the culture for us to conform to the culture's definition of what it thinks is right or not. But as God's people, we are called to conform to a much different and more sacred standard, aren't we? We present our lives as a living sacrifice to God as we learn to say no more and more to the world and yes to Christ. Now, some groups get this all messed up. Even some well-meaning groups. Just think about, just in, in our own area, the, the Amish, or if you're from the county, the Amish. Amish, Mennonites, sweet, hardworking people. They see this command, though, played out by an extreme approach to simplicity by removing themselves from modern conveniences in order to somehow please God. Or there are other groups that we could point to, and there are many of these. We just call them legalists, legalists legalistic Pharisees. They define conformity by coming up with a list of you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you can't do this, don't do these 12 things, do these six things, dress like this, talk like this, do this and do that. Don't listen to this music, listen to this music. And so we come up with this list. And when Paul's saying, do not be conformed to this world, the list is not his main desire. Although those things can certainly be important. It's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying come up with a list of do's and don'ts. He's, he's not saying go banish yourself from culture. He's simply reminding us that for us to be a holy sacrifice to God, we cannot allow the pattern of the secular world to drive our thinking. We're to be in the world, but not of it. And the point he's making is simply that God's will, not the prevailing social norms, become our standard. 
Friends, I think that it's important for us to get this because so much of nominal Christianity, nominal Christianity, which is not genuine Christianity, by the way, so much of nominal Christianity exists today due to the impact of the surrounding culture and the refusal of Christians to live their lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. The reason there are so many mainline liberal churches in decline is because they've given themselves as a living sacrifice to culture and not to God. As we have to understand nonconformity, our standard, I, you know, in a sermon, 1952, Martin Luther King Jr., a sermon entitled Transformed Nonconformist, based upon this text, he said, as Christians, we are a colony of heaven thrown out as pioneers in the midst of an unchristian world to represent the ideals and way of living of a nobler realm until the earth should be the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I love that imagery that we are to be a colony of heaven. Not a colony that retreats looks within, but a colony of heaven. Friends, are, is, that, is that how you live out your life? Are you, are you not conforming to the ways of this world, but your standard is heaven's standard and you're seeking to live life in this world as a colony of that heavenly standard? But it also requires transformation. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Put off, put on, right? Do not be conformed, but be transformed. That means we undergo a change, transformation, right? So I said earlier, if, if you think you can be a Christian without transformation, without change in your life, you're likely not a Christian. This happens to believers, not just some, but all. And this change happens be transformed through what's called the renewal of our mind. So if you expect to have a changed, transformed life, you will also need a new mind. And this is exactly what Christ gives you when you come to him. Paul is not saying that we must change our own minds over time, but that we are to live in light of what we know in the present, through Christ. We are, to give, we are given new minds at the point of conversion and these minds are now set on a course of progressive change throughout the entirety of our lives. We must adjust our way of thinking about everything based upon the new minds we've been given in Christ. And as those mature over time, you will continue to reflect God's character more and more. The older in Christ you become, the more you will see your life dictated by his way, by his standard. It requires a transformation. We're not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Friends, do not settle where you currently are in your life. If you're happy, how things are for you right now, it's not a safe place. If you're happy in your faith, if you're happy in your walk with Jesus, it's not it's exactly where the evil one wants you to be. We're to be transformed, growing in, in Christ, looking more and more like him. So don't, be, don't be settling where you are. 
continue to be transformed as God has given you this new mind and it's, it's the renewal of it so that you're testing what, what is good and what is acceptable and perfect. Not only are we to be a holy sacrifice, we're to be an acceptable sacrifice. Notice that such a life is to be lived, is to be holy and acceptable to God, which clearly implies that you can live a life that's not acceptable to God, even as a Christian. We've been given examples of that so often in the life of Israel. I want to point you to one such example in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. In verse 11, the Lord through Isaiah is condemning the wickedness of Judah. He's calling them out for their hypocrisy. He's condemning them. Listen to the Listen to the language the Lord is speaking through this prophet to his people. Listen, Isaiah chapter one, verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Says the Lord, I've had enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. Hate is a bad word at my house, but here the Lord is saying he hates something. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. You spread out your hands. I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make my many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. The Lord is condemning his people and he is particularly, specifically condemning their worship. He is saying, your worship is a stench to me. And notice the Lord's correction, verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And then he goes into that wonderful passage that Stephen used in his prayer this morning. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God detested Israel's outward forms of worship because they were hypocrites. Especially the leaders of Judah, they were lining their own pockets at the expense of others and then coming to offer their sacrifices. They were happy to show up to worship, but their worship did not impress God because their lives didn't match up through the seeking of justice and the correcting of oppression. You see, Judah was getting the details of worship right. They were nailing it when it came to the outward forms, but they completely missed the heart of it. 
God was criticizing Israel's worship. And notice, he didn't say, I hate your worship because you're not singing enough hymns. He didn't say, your worship stinks because there's not enough Tomlin or Hillsong in it. Come on. So tired of those conversations. Our worship of God is condemned. Their worship of God is condemned because they were frauds. They were fake. They were coming to gather with God's people on the Lord's day. Well, not they're on the Sabbath day during this time. They were coming to church, right? To gather with God's people. And throughout the week, they were living. It's what we say in Tennessee, living. Living like the devil. What an indictment. Corporate worship is very, very important. But it's also just one of the many pieces of who we are. Hebrews 10 verse 25 clearly warns against neglecting to meet together. Corporate worship is commanded and it's a great blessing. I can't imagine life without gathering with the believers on the Lord's day. But here's the truth. If you aren't doing Romans 12, 1 and 2 well, you're not going to do Hebrews 10 verse 25 too well. The quality of our worship gathering is largely dependent upon how well you and I are presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. You know, I often have folks make suggestions and offer opinions about our corporate worship. And I welcome those. And I'm always glad to discuss those and have conversations and see what we can do better and to improve quality and to improve our worship experience when we come together. But listen, the best thing you can do to help this hour on Sunday is to be holy every other day. If you want a better worship experience, pursue holiness. Pursue righteousness. Because here's the thing, just like Israel, we can get to the point where we come in here on Sundays and nail it, maybe. Just the right songs, great prayers, nice transitions, three-point sermons, and God look at us and say, your worship stinks. I hate it. Friends, while we need to give ourselves to excellence in this gathering, we first and foremost need to give ourselves to holiness and righteousness. To live lives that are obedient to the Lord. How you live and how you act and how you serve and what you do throughout the week, how you invest in others' lives and how you do all that you're called to as a believer is an act of worship. This means you and I are called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Think about that. How do you worship God? With your thoughts, with your affections, with your wills, 
Every part of your life is an act of worship. And get this, it will be either an act of worshiping God or yourself, and it will either be acceptable to God or it will not. So let me ask you again, how did worship go for you last week? Before you run to a service in which you gathered, maybe you should look first and foremost at your heart. How did worship go for you? Or what were your motives like this week? What were your words like? How did you treat people? How did you commit yourselves to being ambassadors for King Jesus? Did you present your body as a living sacrifice? Friends, by the mercies of God, and only by the mercies of God, may he enable us to be living sacrifices holy and acceptable to him. Let's pray. Father, as we think about your truth, as we think about your word, you know our hearts. You know, Lord, the answer before it's even on the tip of our tongue of whether or not we are living sacrifices. And Lord, the truth is, is that every single one in this room, we're not living sacrifices every part of this week. So Lord, would you just expose in our own lives where we need to repent and turn to you? Lord, even now as we stand to sing, would you help us to consider these things and respond in faithfulness to you? For your glory and for our own good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing today.